This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Alcon. This content was captured during a live virtual symposium. Voting took place during the symposium. Okay, everybody, welcome in, welcome in. We're happy to have you here. Um, we are here for the KOL Knockout Cataract Edition. And uh, I'm just super pumped uh, to, to, to be uh, hanging out with you guys, uh, talking about some interesting cataract cases, looking at some of the newest technologies that we have available with uh, uh, you know, next generation intraocular lenses, talking about femtosecond lasers and talking about astigmatism management and all that stuff. Um, and so aligning patient preferences and, and ocular characteristics for optimal IOL matchmaking is going to be kind of our goal here. Uh, because you really do have to pick the right IOL for the right person. It is, it is matchmaking, right? This is brought to us by Evolve Medical Education. We appreciate uh, Evolve for being here. Um, and I'm your host. I'm Blake Williamson. I practice down here in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm the managing partner here at Williamson Eye, as well as our Outpatient Surgery Center for Sight. And I mainly, uh, I'll exclusively focus in uh, cataract and uh, vision correction surgery. And um, I decided to find some contestants that I think would really set this thing off because this is a three round deal. Um, whoever makes it through this round is gonna go to round two and whoever makes it to that is going to the final round at AAO live and it's gonna be crazy. Um, and so these are the first three people that I thought of off the top of my head. And of course, they're, they're all very busy. These guys are stars, ophthalmologists to the rich and famous all over the world. Um, and so I, I, I didn't know that I was gonna be able to get them, but in, in fact, I did. So we have Zaina. Uh, from Whitset Vision Group in Houston, Texas. She's cataract refractive and cornea surgeon. We have Mike Greenwood, cataract refractive cornea and glaucoma from VTV in a place called North Dakota, which is north of me. And Bennett Walton, my main man from Sladen Baker, right there in Houston, Texas, also a, a cataract and refractive surgeon. Guys, I'm so happy, guys and gals, so happy to have y'all here. Uh, there's gonna be no holds barred. I, I don't want you guys to hold back. How are y'all feeling tonight, by the way? Is everybody excited to do this? Are you jazzed? Are you nervous? What's, what, what's your emotions? Looking forward to it. See what it's like. If I'm being honest, my heart's racing a little bit. I'm excited. <laughs> Zaina, I want you to throw some haymakers. I think that you need to, you know, totally uh, knock these dudes out. So nobody hold back. So here's our different disclosures. Uh, Zaina and Mike's uh, disclosures there. Here's Bennett's and mine as well. Um, and this is an evolved medica uh, medical education staff event. Um, and this is brought to us by an independent educational grant from Alcon Vision. Thank you so much uh, for allowing us to be here. So so these are our learning objectives. We're going to explain the, the importance of understanding different uh, patient goals and lifestyles. We're going to talk about uh, available IOL delivery systems and their side effects. We're going to talk about the advantages and disadvantages of the different emerging technologies and really develop personal treatment plans and matching the most appropriate IOL with each patient. So without further ado, guys and gals, let's begin with the first case. Okay. This is a 70-year-old engineer, okay? Lights or bells are already kind of going off. We're thinking about engineer. Ooh, I don't want to I don't, I don't take care of an engineer necessarily, um, depending on who you are. Um, but a 70-year-old engineer comes in. This guy's got cataracts. He is contact lens intolerant, and he really hates his thick glasses. The actual story with this guy is we're opening up a new location uh, in the River Parishes, which is like 45 minutes away. It's a new satellite. We, we uh, bought this patient, uh, this, uh, this uh, doctor's practice. And this guy was at our welcome event, right? And he's like, man, I have these huge Coke bottle glasses. I can't wear contacts. And 
no one can ever do anything for me. I've been told there's nothing that can be done. I'm like, ah, you need to come see me. Uh, you know, I'm sure all of you have that patient has been told there's nothing I can do for you. In fact, there's something that's somewhat straightforward that you can. This guy had 16 incision RK in his right eye. Um, and he had eight incision RK in his left eye with T cuts in both eyes. Otherwise, he had a normal eye exam. Um, and this is what his refraction looks like. So he's plus seven, 775 in that right eye with a buck 50 of sill and plus 350 with 275 of sill um, in that left eye. Okay, so not correctable to 2020 or anything like that. Um, and with quite a bit of hyperopia, um, quite, a, quite a bit of, of cylinder. Um, these are what his pentacams, uh, or sorry, his uh, OPD looks like. Um, you see in his right eye, he's got you know over two diopters of corneal sill, really um, in, in both eyes. Um, you know, typical RK patient. Um, you see that it really kind of doesn't match very well with his Iowa Master 700. If you look at the case there, it's showing almost four diopters on that right eye and uh, 4.2-ish um, on that left eye. So it's almost kind of double. Um, on the Iowa master. So not exactly um, apples to apples there, as you would expect. Um, so we get a pentacam and looking at the pentacam, it gives us some more information about 2.7 diopters of sill on the right and about, uh, what does it say, about 3.5 on the left. Um, yeah, so again, very sort of typical um, post 16 or eight cut incision RK patient here. Um, so I'm going to start off with Bennett. Um, I don't want you to tell me what you would do. Don't give me your lens choice. Uh, I, but I do want to hear from you. What is your approach? I imagine that, you know, in your practice, you've seen an RK patient or two who's requesting cataract surgery, but absolutely wants that beautiful vision, spectacle freedom and all that. So what do you what do you think about this? How do you approach these types of patients in general? Yeah, I can see why you have two Houston surgeons on this one. We have a lot of RK here in Southeast Texas. Um, you know, my philosophy is the same, whether it's RK or not. And that's, I'm going to borrow a phrase I heard for the first time today, that expectations are just resentments in the making. And so how can we find a way to make somebody happy with RK? We have the diurnal variation piece that we have to set aside for now, but that's going to be really hard to address. We have the accuracy piece with respect to hitting our refractive endpoints. And then we also have what is the visual potential of this cornea, either with or without a rigid contact. Those are the three things that I try to approach systematically in these patients. Okay. Zana, what about you? How do you take on RK people in general? Are you, how well, do you make them happy? I think big, big picture philosophy. I, I never tell them they can be spectacle independent. That's number one. Um, and I, and it kind of goes to what Bennett is saying. Number one, these are very tough uh, corneas. Most of it, even you know, the one you showed us in terms of the topography is completely irregular. You're putting in a lens that's in there intraocularly. And it's an irregular cornea. And especially in a patient who doesn't want to wear contacts, you know, potentially in a scleral lens where we could do something potentially monovision or, or things like that. But uh, that's the number one thing. And then it's the patients that we miss the most in terms of the target. Um, these are the patients that are very tough to get the refractive target. Um, and, and these are the ones that you could potentially need to exchange. So you know, for me, I completely reshape the discussion and it's not about spectacle independence. It's about 
how can we optimize the best potential vision for you um, and with what you're okay with? Zane, what, what happens when they push back? I mean, these are people who, who they're coming to you because they want to be spectable independent. Like they're like, I had RK, I saw great for 15, 20 years, and then I didn't. Like, yeah. I'm not down for like, no, like I want, I want the solution that, that it gets me out of these glasses. So, cause I hear that from time to time. I mean, oh, yeah. that's oh, why yeah. they're there. And, and I think for me, I show them the picture of the topography. I show them, I actually have a normal placido ring topography image and then I have their placido ring. So I don't show them, you know, the Pentacam or the OPD or all these confusing colors. I just show them the rings and I tell them, look at this normal eye and normal rings and look at your eye. Um, and you tell me how I'm supposed to make those circles normal, right? Without a corneal transplant, barring that, or like I said, scleral lenses uh, are great ways. And I think that is how I start the conversation. Don't get me wrong. We can get patients with our K glasses independent. I just never say that as that's what's going to happen. Mike, one thing that, that I heard you tell me once is that if anybody shows up with post-RK looking for cataract surgery in North Dakota, you send them to South Dakota. Is that is that still <laughs> the case or have you decided to take these cases on now? Yeah, uh, I, I take them on, um, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, but just like you guys, like we, I see at least one RK patient a week. Um, it's it's kind of wild. Um, and And so, you know, my approach on these cases, in addition to what you guys said, is uh same way we talk to all patients but I, I really want to understand their goals like what is your goal of coming in and then i can fine tune you know what options might be available to them and the thing that is so so important to these patients at least in my opinion is doing a gas perm over refraction on them not to show them like hey you know uh basically it's going to show them like this is as crisp as you can get uh right now and you know we're going to take your cataract out but this is as best we can get it and then you compare it to what you can get with the manifest refraction or what they get with their current glasses and say, this is where you're at after we take your cataract out. That's because your cornea is playing a big, big role in this. And that helps them understand what the difference is because uh, you, you didn't show it in this case, but I'm guessing it was probably 2030 or so, you know, so pretty similar. So he actually refracted pretty good, but if his refraction was like 2050 and you put him in an RGP and he's like 2025, then they're like, all right, I know my cornea is like a really big deal. What can we do to minimize that? And maybe their best option is a scleral. Um, but so that piece is really important to me and then understanding what they want. And then I can have my big toolbox of options to go forward, you know, for these patients. Yeah, what about, and I what think about? just to, to jump right in really quick, Blake, um, first of all, whoever wins this round between me and Bennett gets to have all the RK patients. So um, <laughs> I concede. I'm going to hand you this win. I officially concede the point. <laughs> um, the, you know, the other thing, and, and uh, Mike reminded me, is I really like the eye trace for this. Um, and when we're talking about RK, it is important to differentiate between four-cut RK versus a 16-cut RK. You know, four-cut RK can be like a post-refractive patient, and I think it's a whole different discussion um, in terms of potential um, outcomes. Um, and I, and the eye trace is really nice because you have the internal aberrations and then the corneal aberrations, and you can actually show them a simple E, uh, which one is blurry to tell them, look, even though you do have a cataract and the E is blurry there, look at how your cornea looks. So I'm all about sort of showing the photo, um, and the pictures for the patient. Yeah. One, one of the things I love is, is, uh, how, whenever we were in training, we were just taught that, that RK is the worst thing ever. 
Yet in the real world, we see the vast majority of arcade people were loved it, absolutely loved it. And they were like, man, that was great for 15 years. Like, I know Vision's not great now, but like, I would do that again tomorrow. Do arcade again. I have people like coming back asking for arcade, which is so funny. Um, but anyway, uh, we have better things now. Okay, so um, here's one thing that, that, that nobody mentioned um, that I like to do, especially with a 16 incision arcade people, is we all look at the retina. Um, you know, I usually get digital wide field imaging with either Claris or Optos, depending on the location. Um, but I also send these people, um, you know, for a retina evaluation. Um, you know, I, I'm not confident in my, um, you know, my uh, peripheral retina exam. And, and, and so if anything else, I just love to have these people, you know, um, checked out by the retina doc. So any type of 16 incision RK patient um, or any, you know, uh, um, um, you know, very, very high myope is someone that I, I traditionally like to have retina look at first. So, so make sure to, uh, to uh, do that for all these types of people. All right, what's your plan? Bennett, you're going to go first, okay, uh, for case number one. I want to know what type of IOL are you going to do? Where are you going to target? What's your astigmatism plan? Are you doing femto? Are you doing manual? Walk me through it. Absolutely. So if we walk through this, First, I'll start with the discussion with the patient again, because I want to know why he was contact lens intolerant. Was it sensation? Was it the vision wasn't worth it? Was it manual dexterity? Because that may have been a long time ago. I don't know. It may have been recently. I had the benefit of working with some great scleral lens fitters who do beautiful work. And I bring that up not to, to hedge the lens discussion at all, but that, but to say that with the light adjustable lens, we have the benefit of not necessarily having to correct astigmatism at the time of surgery. And then we can potentially fine tune sphere within several diopters. And I tell them there's a chance that you might heal even outside this range of adjustability. But we have the benefit of letting them get post-op and showing them, okay, this is about what we can achieve with spectacles. Because I like Mike's idea about showing them spectacle versus uh, gas perm before surgery, but they have a cataract in the way. So it doesn't always work. And therefore we can show them as they're healing, whether they want this best corrected with trial lenses, is that what we're going for? Or do we correct the sphere only, making it a really easy optical fit with a, with a scleral? So that's an option that lets us have that flexibility later. In terms of targeting, in general, these have drifted hyperopic. We tend to target for distance. Um, it's generally just easier to do a central treatment to, the, to an LAL to pull it nearer rather than a mid-peripheral to push it further. Um, the IC8 would be a great option. Uh, potentially, I have not used it, and I we have simply found this to work really well. Um, I, if you can pull up the slides that you had a moment ago that showed the specific questions we're asked to address, because for the audience, these are the first time we are seeing these cases and these questions. Um, in terms of, mainly, it's just what IOL would you use? Yeah, so, yeah. But in terms of the femto, I've heard different opinions regarding femto and RK and how pretty it is or how pretty it isn't. And to me, I, I don't feel super strong about you must use femto or you can never use femto. If the if there are few incisions and they're pretty and the cataract is pretty dense, I'll feel comfortable using it. Otherwise, why introduce difficulty with a capsulotomy um, in an otherwise routine case? Okay, so you would do LAL and you would target both eyes for distance. Is that right? That's your final answer? Both eyes for distance to begin with. To start with. Okay, That's and right. then kind of titrate from there. 
Exactly. Zaina, what do you think? Okay, so what I would do is um, I, I've tried the LEL. Um, you know, the issue with sometimes the LEL is getting a good refraction, and it's not about just sort of waiting for stability, but, you know, the refraction can change from the morning to night. But I agree with Bennett. That was sort of the best thing after the monofocals that we had before. Um, so what I've started doing is the IC8 lens, which is what I would use here. Um, so in terms of astigmatism correction, we published on using toric IOLs, monofocal toric IOLs in patients with RK, but they have to have regular astigmatism centrally, um, and it has to correlate between the different um, devices, which isn't the case on this. So I would not put a toric lens in. Um, what's nice about the IC8 lens is it filters uh, some of the peripheral rays, and, and although the FDA trial says you know, up to 1.5 diopters of astigmatism, we're seeing with these RK patients that you can get uh, pretty good vision um, with the IC8 lens, even in higher magnitudes of astigmatism. The ones that do better are the ones that have less than about five diopters of astigmatism. So when you're seeing this really irregular, centrally irregular with all these um, LRIs in addition to the RK, you know, it's not necessarily going to be solved. Um, and same with the getting the good refractive outcome. But I do bilateral IC8 lenses aim for a minus 0.75 for both eyes. Um, and, and patients do really well, especially in a patient that's uh, contact lens um, intolerant. I love that you do bilateral. So you're so, cause they'll tell you don't do bilateral because the dimming and all that stuff, but you're saying, you know what, in this case, like I'm going to go bilateral. Is that right? To be fair, we just started doing this. So again, this is very early and I'm having, I'm doing one eye at a time talking to the patient they get to decide um, and then doing either monofocal or bilateral IC8 lens. But I do think it's a very reasonable option. So that's what I've started doing. Um, again, I'll know in six months or so, you know, but from our starting and, and talking to others that, that have been doing it, this has been a really great approach uh, to these patients. Okay. Mike, I mean, when you look at the biometry, it's like, if it really is four diopters, like, I feel like maybe I don't have enough with an LAL. And like Zaina said, if, it, if, if IC8s 1.5 is what they say in the study. Gosh, what if it's four? I mean, which of these do I trust? I don't know. What do you think, man? What would what would you do? Yeah. So, uh, I I you know was thinking about this case and trying to decide, and, and I have the benefit of going last, benefit or unbenefit, you know, trying to differentiate. Uh, and I I was thinking not about for long, that. not for long, buddy. We're gonna yeah, I know. I this is this is an awesome case, and um, you know he's an engineer. He's good at that out there, but he's obviously very tolerant of imperfections, right? He's twenty walking around best corrected twenty thirty. Who knows how he's walking around day to day? And so I think he's going to do really really well, um, you know, with what Bennett said and what Zana said. And if you're keeping score at home, both of them complimented me each through this. So just keep that in mind as you're deciding who to vote for. And so I'm I'm going to do I'm going to do a little bit of a twist here. Um, you know, and does he have a dominant eye? Okay, let me does see. Does it make a difference? I, I, it doesn't, it I, doesn't make a difference. Here's I what I think it makes one. No. I'm gonna I'm gonna do um the IC8 lens. Okay. Uh, first, like Zaina said, let that heal. See how he's doing. I'd still target with that minus seventy five. And if he's loving it, then I do the same thing in the other eye. But if he says it's good, but I, you know, I'm, it's not as crisp as I want it. And I really like, I'm enjoying kind of that mid range and I'm getting some of this, but I really want the crispness and the distance or, or best you can get me. Cause I know that I got all this stuff going on as best corrected 2030. 
let's go ahead and do the LAL on the other eye. So I'm doing LAL, I'm doing IC8 first, minus 75, let it heal. And then I'm most likely doing LAL targeted distance in the other eye. So I'm doing uh, a monofocal in the, yeah, mix and match. There you go. Well, I know okay. you're from, I know you're from North Dakota. And that sorry. was, go ahead, go ahead and finish your thought if you'd like. Yeah, for completeness, I'm doing manual. I'll maybe make my Rexus just a touch on the bigger side, knowing that if I have to do an exchange, it's, you know, not going to get that fibros fibrotic uh, ring on it, but, you know, let it settle and go that route. Very good. I, I know you're from North Dakota, but that was pretty cold even so to say, I'm going to be the judge of you two and let the patient decide which of <laughs> two of us is right. <laughs> I was on your side with these people. I love it. All right, so so uh, we get to actually do the the uh, the poll now. Is that right? So let's vote while they're voting. You know, as Mike said, time is a big deal. So even with the LAL, I don't use my normal time frame. I wait quite a while longer. We separate treatments by a month. We typically don't get them finished until maybe month three, four would be fairly soon for our case. So it's a very different beast in terms of the timing, but the results have simply been worth it for our patients uh, in terms of their satisfaction and for us, but timing is a big deal. So let's see what I did. So what I did was what Mike said. Um, so I, I did the, uh, I did the uh, IC8 Aptera in the 16 incision eye, just cause it was just so cuckoo uh, and all over the place. And I did the LAL um, in the other eye. The MRX, uh, four months after the LDD, was Plano 2020 J2. This guy is just completely bananas uh, and just super, super happy. Um, you know, what's interesting is I did this exact combination um, and another patient, like, um, you know, a, a week later, because I was so excited about this, uh, and my new lens euphoria quickly wore off because they were like, no, there's dimming in this eye and the clarity and the crispness. And so I had to swap the IC8 for an LAL. So so, you know, it just goes to show you the variability that you're going to have. There is no secret sauce. There's not a silver bullet with these crazy eyes. You have to be ready to do the explant. And that's cool. It's just part of the process to getting into the happy zone. But yeah, for all the reasons that, that you mentioned and all of y'all mentioned that, you know, we all know the properties. I think the biggest thing is that, you know, you know, people say, oh, what about like a segmented bifocal or just doing a torque lens and whatever. But like Zana said, I mean, who knows what this still is and they're going to fluctuate. And so for me, um, you know, this, this kind of made the most sense and we did really, really well, um, with this patient. So, um, moving on case two. Okay. This is a 34 year old young patient. Okay. Martial artist who I did a toric ICL on in 2021. I explained, um, uh, that you cannot keep on fighting. You're, you know, she was extremely myopic. I think she was like a you know, minus 10 or something. And I was like, I'm really concerned about that. Um, you know, I wouldn't recommend that you continue to do that. Well, she didn't listen. She kept fighting. Um, and she developed a bullous Mac on RD with a superior tear in 2022, a year later. Now she's coming back with a cataract in that left eye that she got the RD in, possibly a traumatic cataract, right? Um, and she, of course, is, is seeking continued spectacle freedom. Um, the exam is otherwise normal. The ICL in the other eye, the right eye, uh, is fine. The ICL and everything looks fine. Um, so her, her, her MRX in her right eye, she, you can see it there. She, you know, it's very little prescription. She's 20-20. And this eye that's got a cataract, she is plus 25, plus 125 at 50. So we look at her scans. Again, we're just looking at the left eye only because this is the only eye that has a cataract. You see she, of course, has some, some regular uh, cylinder there uh, with the rule. 
matches up between the Pentacam and the OPD. Um, you can see that, that we don't have a great view of the retina um, because of the cataract that's there, but you know, it looks like it's mostly flat. Um, okay, Zaina, um, give us your thoughts about the post-ICL patient who go on to develop cataracts. Um, what lenses will you consider? Remember, these are you know, very myopic you know, patients. Um, some of them are younger. Some of them could develop, especially with older generation ICL, they have, they have, you know, perhaps the ASC cataracts earlier in life. Do you use Pimto? Some people do that. Some people say don't do that in these cases. Kind of walk us through that. Yep. It's funny that you say that because I just did one today. I'm removing an ICL that end up developing cataract. And I do feel like um, we're seeing more of them. I think now with the Evo lens, hopefully um, that shouldn't be as big of an issue. But uh, for me, the problem with the post um, ICL patients are twofold. One is how highly myopic they are, which can limit some of your IOL choices um, or options, really. Um, second is you're taking a patient who is not presbyopic and you're creating an absolute presbyopia for them when you do the cataract surgery. And that's the hardest thing. I mean, these are young patients that really had no issue with reading and suddenly you're going to make them an absolute presbyope. So it's really hard to do a, a monofocal in these patients. You know, your patient theoretically has a retinal detachment. You know, how good is, is the retina? I've started um, loving the light adjustable lens in these types of patients um, for me. Um, you know, the other option would be if everything else is pristine, I'm very comfortable with um, any of the trifocal IOLs. Um, if the patient is okay about sort of the dysphotopsia profile. Um, and then the key here, uh, this patient hopefully is one eye. So you could, you have the options of, you know, anything like from the eye hands to the light adjustable lens. So multifocal, because you still have the ability to read in the right eye. So I would say patient with a history of retinal detachment, uh, especially if the retina, you know, the potential isn't great. Um, I would lean more towards a monofocal, um, especially because the other eye is doing well. Mike, what do you think? So just not, not what you do in this patient, but just in general, that ICL young person that comes to you with a cataract. Um, in, in general, like you said, they're young, they there's still have quite a bit of function. Uh, and, and it's not so much that they're young because they have an ICL, it's they're highly myopic, highly myopic patients get cataracts earlier. P.S. Uh, I'm an ICL wearer user. Um, so keep that in mind, voters on this case. And, um, but yeah, exactly what you talked about, Zaina, they're going to want functional range of vision and going from, you know, a younger person with a cataract to absolute presbyopia is devastating. So to me, usually these eyes are really, really healthy. I think they have the full range of whatever they want for lenses, depending on what their goals are. If they want spectacle independence, you use your fastball for that, whether it's, you know, the trifocal, multifocals, EDOF, or even, you know, the LAL with the, um, you know, mini mono, that type of stuff. And um, I don't typically use Femto on these patients, um, but I, I, you certainly can. I think it's whatever your preferred technique is. And um, uh, the key with this is just, you know, getting comfortable with removing the ICL, um, but you're taking it out and going straight to cataract. So it's, it's pretty straightforward. Bennett, what about you? So these, these ICL patients who are young, they get a cataract. How do you approach yeah. Thankfully, we haven't seen a very high rate and the rate is indeed decreasing. And I don't want to blame an ICL, blame this RD on an ICL and a, and a literal case of daily trauma as a fighter. Um, I, 
You know, the comparison to that perfect fellow eye is really tough. And that's the single biggest thing in the discussion. Um, and I tell them, you know, we can, we can, if you choose a hundred points worth of vision, we can put them all at distance. We can split them because the Mac is on and we know with a, with an acrylic trifocal, I think that could be really successful, but it's going to be really strange at night. It's going to be very different between the two. And we talk about neuroadaptation, but when we're always comparing back and forth, that's not the same as a typical neuroadaptive profile that we would see. Um, you mentioned, do you use Femto? I don't because I don't want the gas bubbles to get trapped under the ICL. Uh, at our practice, Steve Slate always uses the Femto on these ICL cataracts and he's comfortable with it. And uh, I, I don't see a problem with it. I just feel a little more controlled not using it in these cases. Um, you know, LEL is wonderful. I, in such a young patient who has already detached once may have more trauma I don't love silicone in an already detached eye, but it may be the best option for the patient. But all things considered, I'd probably end up recommending an acrylic lens that has more range than most, but is going to be friendly at nighttime and not fight with the, the clear eye. I'd probably lean toward an eye hands or avidity, probably avidity. Okay. Well, so you're kind of getting into the plan there. Zana, you're going to go first here. What, what lens are you going to do for this young lady? She's 34 years old. The other eye is pristine. These are her scans. This is her biometry. What lens are you going to put in this left eye? Yeah, and it's a 29 uh, axial length. Yeah, I'm, I'm leaning between the light adjustable lens and the eye hands in this case. Uh, history of RD, I agree with Bennett. I, if I'm going to pick one, I would do the eye hands lens, especially it's monofocal. He's able to read in the other eye um, and a history of RD. You're not going to do an eye hands torque? Oh, eye hands torque for sure. Yes, correct the astigmatism. Okay, so 100%. you're doing, that's final answer, eye hands toric in this eye. Yes, final answer, eye hands toric. Locked it. Because <laughs> that's what I did today. That's exactly what I did today, so. Dr. Greenwood, what are you going to do? Uh, before I answer, I'm going to comment on a case I did today. It was a patient who had retina issues, cataract previously in the other eye, still high in the myopic. We put a ICL in single eye today. But uh, yeah, for this case, and I've also had a handful of these um, similar cases for various reasons. And um, I, for me, this is a toric trifocal, um, easy peasy. Okay. So even though they've had an RD already in that eye, you're, you yeah. don't want to make them presbyopic as a 34-year-old. And for you, it's worth it. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I want them to have as much range of vision and have it as similar to their other eye as we can. I mean, you commented on the, you know, it was a Mac on RD. Uh, and I was using some assumptions that, you got an awesome retina surgeon, did a good job. Macula, you know, looks pretty intact here. And I'm assuming that the cataract came on after that surgery. But in the meantime, between the RD or even when the RD happened and before her retina surgery, she was still 2020. So to me, I feel pretty comfortable with that. Okay. And, I don't know. And, and, I, and I would have, a, can... I would have a good discussion with the patient of, hey, there's a good chance that maybe you don't really love this and we can take it out. And, and try something different. But I would start with the uh, trifocal torque. Zaina, do you totally disagree with that? I mean, I just want to say that we do have to remember that people, that his patients are just happier in general. Uh, <laughs> we, live in beautiful, we live in a beautiful thing. I think that's an important point. You know, it's very different than some of these Houstonian expectations. I don't, I don't know. Bennett, what do you think? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm in the penalty box because I gave my answer too early. 
<laughs> but, but second of all, I, I, you know, I see, I see the point there. Um, I think range is a huge thing. I think historically surgeons, we have been um, too much as our own high detail personalities um, in the safety of a monofocal lens, as opposed to wanting to restore range as a true uh, meaningful part of vision. So I like range. This is probably a traumatic cataract, at least partially. This patient may have more trauma. I want something a little bit more sensitive against decentration, which is why I'm leaning the EDOF category um, with, with the Vividi Toric. Um, and the, I've, with, with Vividi and iHance, similar profiles, not, iHance is not an EDOF lens. Uh, Vividi is, but there's, but they're both great. I have used both. I have found more range with the Vividi. Um, I also think Symphony is still a great EDOF lens, but because my reason was to try to match the quality of the eyes up at night, uh, that's why I went Vividi in this case. So are you going to offset that Vividi? Are you going to, what's your, what's your target there? I, in a 34-year-old, I probably would not. I'd probably choose distance. And there's debate. If you look at Steve Shalhorn's data regarding monofocal targeting doing better at a plus 0.1 rather than a minus 0.1, which has reshaped some people's thoughts on targeting, I still want to get as much range as I can. I probably target first minus um, in that patient's eye. And that's assuming we have the lens available with axial length Ks, et cetera. Okay. And Mike, you're aiming plano, I assume? Yep. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So, uh, all great, um, options. Um, so let's vote. Um, what's funny is I just, when I did this gal's, eye, um, you know, she, she, uh, she did well. And literally just yesterday, my marketing director sent me a screenshot and she's fighting again. She was like at a kickboxing competition. And this other girl was just like decking her with a punch, like in the eye. And I, I, I called her today. I was just like, Hey, like, what are you doing? You know, um, sometimes you know people are going to live their life, and so you have to kind of like think about, you know, you almost have to think about like um, so patients are sometimes like your children. You know what I mean? You have to like kind of plan for what they're going to do despite what you tell them to do, uh, and sometimes that comes into uh, you know IOL consideration. At least it did well, for me in this case. Yeah, go ahead. And, and, I, and I agree, Blake. And I think it's really important to talk about the that, you know, we might go in with a plan, you know, we might go in with whatever plan we want and we end up having significant zonular loss and we're just doing a, a primary Yamani with scleral fixation and, and you get a monofocal. So I think that's a really important point in this case. So. Okay. Mike, you got something? I was just piggybacking on Zena, but yeah, most likely all of us are probably putting a capsular tension ring in this, uh, in this patient. Okay. So what did I do? So I did a manual ICL removal, okay? I, I actually don't like using Femto uh, in these cases for some of the reasons you guys mentioned. And I did an Invistatoric IOL with a Plano distance target. She ended up uh, minus 25 um, uh, sphere with a 2025 plus uh, distance refraction. And she's J1 because her other eye, you know, is giving her a really good accommodative amplitude. And so, you know, I, I think the reason why I did this, I didn't love the idea of making someone an absolute presbyote. Um, but my thought was something that Bennett mentioned, which is that, you know, I didn't know what I was going to encounter when I got in there. And I didn't know about centering a true EDOF lens, like let's say a Vividi or, or a uh, Symphony or something. Um, I think, in, uh, I think that a iHands probably would have made good sense, um, because it's less, you know, you're less concerned about centration. 
um, uh, or are you actually, you, centration actually does matter with, uh, with eye hands, doesn't it? It can throw you off, right, Mike? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think, I think it's important just with all the lenses designed and the optics that centration is right. really important with all these kind of monofocal yeah. plugs. Yeah. So in Vista, we know the exact same power from the very center to the edge, right? And so I thought like, gosh, if I get in there and I did use a CTR, if this does decenter or God forbid, if this gal continues to fight, which she is, um, you know, um, you know, I like that Invista has those two loopholes there. If I had to have my retina guy go back in and sew something, he likes to do it with that as opposed to the, uh, the Acrios. Uh, so for all those reasons, um, and because she told me she doesn't do a whole lot of up close work, she doesn't do a lot of reading. She's on her phone and tablet and stuff, but you can increase font size. Um, she was okay with the idea of reading glasses, even at 34. So we kind of played it safe and, and did an Invista torque and she did very well. Um, you see stuff like arm's length away, like. <laughs> right, right. Uh, all right, case three. This is a this is a this is an interesting case. Okay, fifty-two uh, year old dude comes in. Um, he's complaining of his reading glasses. Uh, he sees great at distance. He always has. He's never had to wear glasses or contacts, but he wants a surgical solution to see up close. He's got no other complaints. He just hates his reading glasses. This guy golfs at the exact same country club as me. I don't golf, but I'm like in the 19th hole, you know, uh, having a glass of wine routinely. Um, our wives are good pals. This dude, like I bump into him probably three days a week. Okay. So I'm going to see this guy. All right. High stakes. Yes. Okay. I'm not going to be able to duck him if something goes south. Right. Um, and the slit lamp exam, yeah, he's got trace nucleosclerosis. He's 52, but otherwise really healthy eye. He's got, you know, no prescription there, but he is a J8. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of squinting and it's, it's laborious for him to get all the way through a J8 uh, on the near card. Um, here are his uh, tomographies. Um, you see he's got a little bit of sill on that right side, um, about, a, about a buck and 0.7 on, on the left. Um, interesting, does have like a little posterior um, yellow on that back difference map there. Um, but, you know, nothing on the final D value or anything like that. Um, and we look at his, um, his OPD3 topography, and again, showing a little bit more sill on the right, um, and it looks like it is matching up around that 80-ish degree meridian on that right side, so fairly consistent and not a whole lot of cylinder um, on the left eye on the topography or the tomography. Um, okay, Michael Greenwood. I want to know about your philosophy on operating on the unicorn, the Plano Presbyo that's in your office saying nobody else will op operate on me. You're the fourth person I've come to, uh, which I don't know what that, I don't know if that's good or bad, um, but um, no one's giving me a solution. I'm here because you're Dr. Greenwood um, and I want to get out of these reading glasses. How do you talk to them about expectations? Do you operate on these patients? Do you send them down the road? Do you send them to South Dakota? What do you do? I, uh, yeah, I, spend a lot of time talking to these patients and if operating is their best option, what they want, then that's what we do. Um, so these are, um, they're unicorns. They used to be hugely problematic, but with the technologies we have emerging, these patients have a lot of options now. And so I know this is an IOL discussion, but I talked to them about what you're currently doing, reading glasses. We've got pharmaceuticals to help with the near if they want to go that route. You know, we've got contact lens monovision, we've got LASIK monovision, and then we've got, 
you know, surgery where we take out your natural lens that you were born with and put it in with an artificial one that can help give that range of vision and kind of walk through all those pros and cons, every single one of them and, and kind of see where they're at. And if, and if all of those things lead to, Hey, I think my best option is, uh, you know, refractive lens exchange, then I sit down and we go, okay, here's your different options. Here's what I'd recommend and, and kind of go that route. But what I really, really, really drive home is look, I can't get you what you were 10 years ago where you were seeing great in the distance, had that full range, you know, you didn't even think about your vision because you were born with, you know, perfect eyes. And I say, there's going to be some trade-off. There's going to be some time, but I'll be able to help you see well in the distance, see well up close, because that seems to be your biggest problem. Intermediate's going to be pretty good too, but you're going to have to make some adjustments and you're going to have to be flexible and there's ups and downs to it. And then you kind of start teasing out like, what, what are they most tolerant of? Or what do they want most? Like, hey, I really need the range. I'm cool if I'm getting some dysphotopsias or I want least amount of dysphotopsias, um, knowing that there's going to be some, no matter what we choose, I'm willing to give up a little bit of, you know, vision at some distance, whether it's near or intermediate. And so we kind of walk through that way. And it's just a conversation of going down the pathway and, and finding what they want. Bennett, same question. Plano Presbyo, what do you, how do you counsel them? Yeah. The first thing you do in these patients is you ask your staff, do we want to marry this patient forever? Because <laughs> they've already, they have often seen lots of people. These may be very demanding people because they still see great, but they have a problem. But also presbyopia is a real issue. It's something really to deal with. And so a lot of times uh, patients will present to us very differently interpersonally than they might to our staff. So because this is already going to be a tougher expectation case, most likely, that's an important detail. And in general, we're talking about do we want to blend each eye to somewhere different for a mono, mini, mono, et cetera? Do we want to split, split light within each eye individually or some combination thereof? And those are the things we have to walk through. Zana? Yeah, so I would say these are probably some of the toughest patients. You know, again, Plano Presbyo, yes, I agree with Bennett. Presbyopia is an issue. Why, why is there a huge contact lens market, glasses market, you know, eye drop market and, and surgical market. So it is a disease process in, in my view book, but these are the hardest to make happy. Um, and that's because they don't understand what it means to need distance glasses, right? They say, well, I'm fine. You know, and you tell them, well, <laughs> um, you, you don't understand what, you know, there's this other aspect to it. Um, and so I start, I'm pretty conservative in general, um, I start with the whole discussion, you know, obviously you don't want to wear glasses. There's multifocal contacts that you can use. Um, in this patient, I wouldn't, but definitely monovision LASIK is good um, in certain patients, but I wouldn't jump to it to someone who hasn't, you know, really uh, like utilized that before. Um, and then, and then you move on to the eye drops. I mean, you know, the presbyopia eye drop market is getting better and better over the next year or two. And for me, you don't have to operate the first time you meet this patient, you know, they can try the contact lens or, or try potentially the eye drops. And then I agree with Mike in the end, if after all that, they still want to have a surgical solution, then I'm comfortable proceeding. And in terms of surgical solution, I look at it in two ways, really. Um, 
it, they're doing it to get reading. I'm try. I will get them reading in the sense of sort of a trifocal, like that's kind of their issue. So to me, that's what they're trying to to achieve. But it's important to discuss with them the dysphotopsy and the potential. Maybe the distance isn't the same as what it is now. So that's one compromise. Um, the other option is for patients who want to be a little bit less dependent on glasses. Uh, and the other option for me is the blended vision with the light adjustable lens. Um, and with that, you don't opt, you don't give up that excellent distance vision for this patient who loves golf, but you're not getting the same uh, reading as you do with a multifocal lens um, necessarily, especially with both eyes. And, but it just depends what they want more. Are you okay with wearing reading glasses? Sometimes a lot less than what you're doing now, or you never want to really put a pair of glasses again, but there is a dysphotopsia issue. And that's how I think about it and talk about it. But these are patients I try to not to push away from a surgical solution, but if that's what we reach, then I'm very comfortable proceeding. That's an interesting philosophical point you bring up, which is the, the LASIK piece. So, so, so would you, would y'all offer LASIK, like LASIK in one eye to, to a Plano presbyope? And if so, like Mike, what would you, what would you plug into the laser? What do you, I for have the, no prescription. Yeah. For these patients, I, uh, I, they always get a contact lens trial and see if they like it. We just give them, you know, we started like a minus one and just see how they function or plus one rather. And, um, see how they function, see how they like it, uh, see if it's helpful. And, um, some, I, we have like one or two that have done it, but usually people are like, eh, it's not giving me all that I want, but at least we know we've eliminated it. So I always, I wouldn't jump straight to LASIK. It'd be a contact lens trial. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, especially in a 52 year old. You and know, above you, 50, I feel like for me is kind of my cutoff in my head. Um, yeah. To, for any sort of LASIK um, solution. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. All good points. All right. Um, so Mike, you go first this time. Is that right? Yep. My turn. Um, give, me your, give me your plan. Yeah. So just to hammer in one more point, it, the, the final conversation for me is on, on this and deciding is, you know, what's really, 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 really most important. Is it the distance or is it the reading? And this, to me, based on the discussion, it sounds like it's the, the range and he wants the reading um even though he golfs a lot and he wants to see that distance but to me the problem sounds like uh the reading so for that reason i would go bilateral trifocal uh, plus minus toric if the calculations indicated it because he was kind of right on that border and um you know if he's got a little bit of leftover residual he might enjoy it but if he doesn't then we've got lasik touch up for him to crispen it up so i would go uh bilateral trifocal okay bennett yeah, I think here um, the added benefit potentially to a 52-year-old is that you can say, hey, we have a couple of options. Um, either way, one of the benefits we can get is we can prevent you from getting cataracts, which sounds silly. That sounds salesy. That's something that feels dirty to say a little bit. But cataracts are not something that are nonchalant to most patients. And so being able to say, you know what? I can go ahead and fix it now, and then I won't get cataracts. Um, I won't go through the gradual years of, of the decline leading to it. Um, the what I tend to do is is look through quote quote the the numbers, the patient satisfaction data, um, and then for, in my case for the, for the panoptics here to say. 126 out of 127 patients in the trial said they would do it again in six months. There's no such thing as perfection. Now they had cataracts. So their wow effect 
is going to be a little more dramatic than yours because you're starting out with 100% distance. Um, and there will be more glare halo starbursts, especially some halos at night. And if they recoil in the seat, then that's easy. I can go ahead and say, all right, well, it sounds like that's not something you're, you're worth, you're willing to, to move forward with. And then we talk about maybe um, an LAL and the non-dominant, which I think would give more range and be more stable than the LASIK that we had talked about earlier. But that's my forked decision tree. So my first answer is the bilateral plan for the panoptics non-dominant eye first. Okay, so bilateral trifocals. All right, Zaina, take us home. So I would say, again, try not to try to push them away to all the non-surgical options. But if I'm pushed, I would make the patient decide between the bilateral LAL or bilateral trifocal. And it truly, to me, is what do they want more? Is it the reading and they're okay with dysphotopsia? Or is it more, I don't, definitely don't want to give up my amazing crisp distance vision, but I want more range. So it's really hard for me to, to pick because again, depends on the patient. You got to pick, you got to pick. You got to make a decision. People are going to vote on what you choose. Okay, fine. So I'll be different. Um, I'll do the LAL for this patient. And what are you, what are you targeting? So I target minus 0.5 in the non-dominant eye, you know, Plano basically in the dominant eye, but then that's where we start. And then you uh, continue to give them more reading. You want to go at least minus 0.5 in the minus direction on your first treatment to get the, a higher EDOF in your non-dominant eye. Um, and because before I used to start with a little bit more minus, now I start again, closer to Plano to, to be able to do that and get the most EDOF because it doubles your EDOF power for the lens. And you could okay. make the argument that you don't need to do the dominant with the LAL. However, I bet this patient is probably going to want that anyway, once they see what that trace NS actually was doing for their non-dominant eye. It'll be more stable long-term. It won't have the shifts and you can adjust the eyes together. Plus, we found more range in the LAL um, than this patient has with presbyopia anyway. In terms of maybe Zaina, what went into your thought to do bilateral and not just go for the non-dominant? Exactly. Thanks, Bennett, for for getting people to vote for me. I, that was <laughs> awesome. it's, it's only because you have leather-bound books and that was awesome. background yeah. smells of rich mahogany. Do, uh, ben and I, do Ben and I have the same answer? Do we need to differentiate a little bit? Well, I, I, I'm trying to do nope, a mic nope. technique. And I, don't want, I, don't want, I don't want too people late. to get confused and not vote for me. Too late, too late. They'll just vote <laughs> for the one that's different. That's what we're going for. I'm Don't different. You guys, you guys both have long, dark hair. Nothing <laughs> different. Yeah, and we should clarify. So, so Mike and Bennett, y'all both said panoptics. I said, I said panoptics is my plan A. Okay, and Mike, yeah. panoptics? And I'm going to do them both on the same day. Okay, so you're doing, you're doing uh, bilateral, same day. Bennett, okay, all right. So both panoptics, okay. I said bilateral, uh, different day because there's no cataract and there's no refractive error. Okay. Like another question came in. Uh, instead of bilateral trifocals, how about LAL for dominant and IC8 and then non-dominant at target minus 75? So I'll take this. My new lens of euphoria has worn off for IC8 now that I explanted one uh, this week. Uh, still a great lens. Uh, I still am planning on using it. But, um, you know, I think that in a patient who uh, is, you know, has a very healthy eye, you know, has no cataract to speak of, just trace you know, I, I just think that there are better options um, for, for giving that near vision. I don't think that the IC8 
uh, is going to give the level of near vision uh, that let's say a trifocal, um, you know, whether it be a pen optics or a synergy or something like that will give you. Um, so I, I just don't think in the, I don't know, what do y'all think? Would you, would you do a nice, a diaceate in, in a, in a, for a custom lens replacement, someone desiring near normal, healthy cornea? Not yet. I was, I would, no, I, I would do the same as you mentioned. I was going to say, we already used up our consignment to the LAL and IC8 and the other eye on the first case. So. Yeah, I just don't, I just don't, I just don't think it should be your fastball. I mean, I think you could probably get it to work. Uh, but yeah, you can make people happy probably, I guess, but I just don't think it should be your fastball. Zaina, don't you think? I agree. I would not, I would not do, I, I, you know, I like the concept of, of what you're doing, but for light adjustable lens, I really do like um, sort of other than the RK example, I really do like bilateral placement. A large part of, you know, the outcome with that lens is, is how you adjust both eyes um, and what they're getting for both eyes. So okay. I, if you're going to do the light adjustable lens, I would do bilateral. So we're going to move on to the uh, fourth case. So before we do that, what did I do? No surgery. I tried uh, said that. You didn't let me say that. that. We, we all did. We all did. We all did. That's yeah. wrong. I, I took a page out of Zaina's book. I was uh, I was very much um, of the mom when I walked in that room that like, at least for this case, like he was going to have to really twist my arm uh, again, because this is someone that I'm going to see every week for decades. Um, and, um, and, and so we had a lot of discussion, just like all of you said, and I did talk to him about contact lenses and he hated it. We tried to do a monovision contact lens trials thinking about those things. He couldn't stand it. Um, how much we, did you give him in the non-dominant? I think, uh, I think they gave him like minus 150 or, or that's, plus 150. That's a lot. You yeah. know, with the LAL, you wouldn't need that much, uh, for, for most men. Yeah. Yeah, with longer so, arms. That wasn't a sexist what thing. What are you That's implying? Just... What are you? Implying? <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, he didn't like that, and, and I mentioned, hey, listen, I can put, you know, I have, I have a fastball, you know, um, I'd probably do an EDOF trifocal combo in him, um, uh, but you know, the halo glare at night thing, my people aren't, you know, my patients aren't that concerned with because you know it tends to get better and they they get it and they understand. It's that it's that distance contrast sensitivity. It's that crispness. It's the, gosh, I got to be right up on the street sign before I see it clearly, or I can watch the ball game, but I can't see the score. Or, hey, doc, the, that license plate in front of me, the letters are double, I have double vision. And it's like, well, no, that's just ghosting. That's contrast. And so, so I was kind of, and I told him all those things. I probably spent 30 minutes with this guy. Um, and after all that, he's like, well, that doesn't sound perfect. And I said, thank you. I said, <laughs> we, we sell glasses and contacts at Williamson Eye Center too. No problem. Uh, I was like, this is the deal. So after all that, he said, you know what, let me do Vuity. And he had done Vuity in the past um, and it, he didn't like it. But now that they have the updated dosing where it's BID, now that he's using twice a day, he actually just texted me. He's, uh, he was saying that he's getting a lot more success with that. So not replacing his readers, obviously, um, but he says he's using them less. So he's going to rock the, the, the BID dosing of the Vuity for a little while. Um, and, um, and then we're going to consider surgery in the future. Um, if you try multifocal contact, no, in fact, I brought him over. That's the interesting thing you say, um, because I brought him over to my OD that, that does a lot of contact lens trials. He kind of has refused to do any more because he's like, Blake, really? just not, yeah. He, Cause he's like, Blake, it's not the same as the multifocal lens. He goes, yeah, oh, really yeah. he was like, he's like, it's never as good, which we all acknowledge. And we're like, yeah, it's not as good. And we kind of tell the patient like, Hopefully it's a little, you kind of sort of like it because the, the lens will be so much better. And he's like, Blake, I never hear that. They tell me this is awful. And I feel like it almost like puts the idea of any multifocality out of their mind. So he's like, I think we need to stop doing this. 
So he kind of convinced me. So we no longer do the multifocal lens contact lens trial. Um, he's like, yeah, yeah, yes. If they if they like it, then great, slam dunk. Do the multi, do the trifocal, whatever. But he goes nine times out of ten, they really don't like it, and I don't feel like I'm giving the multifocal IOL a fair shake. Is what he told me. So that's we, really interesting. Yeah, yeah and, and thanks for that of, insight. A lot of a lot of ODs will tell you that. You know, it's rare that you have that patient that comes back and says, yes, the multifocal contacts were killer, right? And so it's almost like, are we really setting ourselves up for success? I don't know. So um, not nearly as good as a monofocal contact lens trial, which very much gives you a, a decent idea, right? So that's kind of um, how we went about it. Um, okay, potentially the final case here, guys um, and gals. 57-year-old man who's a cardiothoracic surgeon. All right, he's in the hospital adjoining one of my clinics. So again, I see this dude in the lunchroom. Uh, he's a big hotshot CT surgeon. Um, he comes in, he's got a vision decrease. All right, so stakes are high. Um, history of monovision LASIK, 17 years ago in his right eye for distance, his left eye for near, worked very well. Now his vision's blurry and uh, him operating on people's hearts is getting more difficult. It's crazy that people actually operate on hearts every day, amazing. Um, not interested in glasses or contacts. And I look in there, he's got solid two plus NSC. You can barely kind of sort of see his LASIK flaps there. Um, otherwise normal exam, he's plus 75 on that right eye and he is minus 125 plus 150, um, in that left eye, which was originally his, uh, near eye with his monovision LASIK, uh, 17 years ago. So you look at his topography, here's what you see, um, really not a whole lot of sill at all, um, uh, on the topography, Myers look pretty good. His macula is nice and flat. You look on his, uh, biometry. Very little cylinder, um, pretty straightforward. It doesn't really look like he had LASIK necessarily, um, although his K's are a little flatter. Um, so philosophy. So I guess we'll start back at the beginning. So I think, Bennett, you went first. So what's your philosophy um, on IOLs for patients with prior myopic LASIK? Does it change if it was hyperopic LASIK? What about those monovision patients? Do you keep them in monovision surgically? And uh, what do you think about offering IOLs to surgeons? Uh, does it, are you more conservative or are you, do you lean in more for the presbyopia correcting piece, depending on what sort of discipline they do surgically? What do you, give, give us some of your thoughts here. Yeah, these, these are great, great uh, discussion points. I do see myopic and hyperopic LASIK as very different. I feel like myopic uh, corneas or, you know, the flatter centrally corneas are going to have more forgiveness for various lenses. But I also don't think all myopic LASIK is the same. A, a myopic LASIK with a broad beam laser from early uh, you know, to, to mid-90s is not going to be as friendly to a modern range of vision lens as a more recent minus three-ish, you know, nice smooth scanning spot laser. Um, so that's those are not the same. Um, hyperopic LASIK, our accuracy is significantly reduced. Accuracy becomes an issue as does potentially quality. Um, I love um, staying with what works for people if they were truly happy with it. And they'll tell you if they loved it or, you know, it was okay. And, and, and that, that has some value in how they respond. Um, and, you know, this surgeon probably needs good color vision to see that sanguinous red liquid that um, this <laughs> surgeon might see that we never do. Um, but I do think I do have a predisposition toward surgeons and engineers with uh, 
contrast and quality perhaps being more important than range uh, if you truly had to make them go head to head? Zaina? Um, I think I agree, uh, you know, regardless of whether at this point, given how amazing our technologies are. So my, my idea has shifted. I mean, we have really great trifocal lenses. Like I've had, you know, great success with the panoptics in general. Um, you know, again, blended vision, light adjustable lens, um, that, you know, with, with patients who are, whether they're surgeons or engineers are much more comfortable, um, sort of with some of the potential compromises, as long as the patient understands. Um, and, you know, you really, I mean, there's all these ways you can have them kind of look at pictures, look at sort of, you know, on TV, what it's going to mean um, that people are really um, more accepting of these things. You know, in post-refractive patients, um, I used to define whether it's post-myopic versus post-hyperopic and then the type of lens and based on the spherical aberration profile and all of these things, it used to, it definitely matters. Um, maybe uh, made a difference. At least I told myself and I was really big about that and, and the choice of IOL. Um, but now I really lean towards for my post-refractive patients, the, the light adjustable lens that I don't really have to sit and think about. Um, whether it's post-myopic or post-hyperopic, um, you know, they do have some ability to read with the post-hyperopic um, ablation profile, which is nice. Um, a little bit of an EDOF in itself, um, but that's kind of my thought process now. And Mike, I mean, this guy, you know, he's a, he, he's in that hospital. I'm, I'm thinking about putting him in those RX site glasses, you know, for a, for a month and, and all that stuff. How's he going to operate? I mean, I don't know. It doesn't seem like a simple thing. I don't, I, don't, I don't know your answer yet, but like, give me your overall thoughts about something like this walking through your door. Yeah. You know, as I was thinking about this case and just kind of like contemplating like, how, you know, the questions that you've posed and <laughs> just getting ready to, to like get after it a little bit. Um, I, I I was thinking, you know, along the lines of Zaina, uh, I'd mentioned, you know, with the the previous LASIK patients, and I, I don't do a ton of thinking with myopic versus hyperopic, other than making sure I've got it entered into the calculator the correct way. Um, one thing that's really helpful is in these patients that had LASIK a long time ago is doing epithelial mapping because that'll give us a good sense of like what the epithelium looks like. Because now I'm thinking of, okay, if I have a refractive miss, how do I touch up this patient? Do I want to do PRK? Do I want to lift their flap? Or do I want to adjust the IOL? And if they've got, you know, real thick kind of ruddy epi, I don't really want to disturb that. And so we're either going to lift the flap or, you know, adjust the IOL and, and go that route. So that's how I kind of think of these previous refractive patients, the previous monovision patients. So my mom was a previous monovision patient with contact lenses only minus nine ish eyes. And we got her out of monovision into uh, low ad multifocal, different low ad multifocal, a uh, bifocal uh, in the, you know, this was 2017 ish um, in both eyes. So she went from monovision to multifocal, both eyes and, and loves it. Um, previous LASIK patients them, uh, that are monovision, I lean a little bit more towards LAL um, in those situations. So, and then your last part on the surgeon part, uh, I look at this two different ways. Like we, I think all of us on here probably operate on our family members. And so when you operate on your family members, you, you know, you treat them just like you do every other patient's exact same. So it's the same approach when you're approaching a surgeon. Uh, from an occupation, <clears throat> occupation standpoint with surgeons, 
yeah, it's important to understand kind of what they do. And and I can't remember who made the comment, but you maybe think a little bit more about um, quality versus range on them, especially if they're, you know, dimming the lights, looking at monitors and stuff like that. But that's just an occupational thing. Do you use those gloves? Or, I mean, do you, are you a boxer? I, this is how I operate. <laughs> just boom, ready to rock and roll. That's some dense cataracts in North Dakota. I like, I show up. Yeah. Yeah. You rock the cataracts and then I say like, let's go, let's go knock it off. <laughs> All right. I want your answers guys and gals. What are we going to do here? Uh, Bennett, you're, uh, you're up first. What, what lens are you doing in this, in this uh, CT surgery? All right. So Zaina mentioned higher order aberrations and that matters a lot, but not any, not more than lower order aberrations. So let's just hit the refractive target. This is, for me, a pretty easy case of going LAL. We know monovision works great in this patient. We know that quality is super important. Um, with respect to the uh, need for UV glasses, since the active shield was uh, put in the lens, which protects the lens from UV light until you go to the light delivery device, and the first part of a treatment to the lens is a single uh, wavelength UV treatment that inactivates the active shield and allows you to adjust. So the lens has, has extra safety features now that, um, that have made it easier, even though the FDA has not allowed any changes to the labeling. In fact, there's some data out of uh, Tijuana where patients didn't wear UV glasses at all, and it was pretty favorable. It was very favorable with, with no um, untoward results. So in terms of the need for wearing UV protection in the OR, practically that's not a, a need uh, in my opinion. And so we would discuss as such, I'd still want the, the dark sunglasses in the sun. Um, but to me, this is an LAL uh, target, the dominant eye for distance for Plano, target the, the, the near preferred or non-dominant eye, a little shy of the eventual myopic target, because as Zaina mentioned earlier, if you move that non-dominant eye a bit closer, and I think since uh, they've changed some, some of the parameters in the light delivery that make it a little bit easier to achieve that extra extended depth of focus, that non-dominant eye, as long as you treat it a little bit more myopically with a non-plano slightly minus target, you're going to get that extra range anyway. So to me, this is somebody I'm excited about taking care of. Zaina? Yeah. I mean, for me, a monovision post-refractive patient is the ideal light adjustable lens patient. Um, the only reason I wouldn't is if the patient doesn't want it, uh, doesn't want to go through the trouble post-operatively, doesn't want to pay sort of the upgrade for the light adjustable lens. Um, and then a uh, monovision with a monofocal would be my next um, option for this patient. Okay, Mike? I have to align begrudgingly, uh, but yeah, I would do LAL, mini mono, target distance, minus 75-ish, and, and adjust from there with the light adjustable lens in this case. You okay. and, I, and I don't have a backup, up, What? You seem so nice till you brought out the boxing gloves. I mean, well, I, I, yeah, you guys took the wind out of my sails on this one. There's nothing to like to <laughs> combat you on. All I was going to comment on was I don't have a backup plan for this one because I feel really confident about it. So I don't need to like do a backup plan. So Zana, your backup would be to do the same thing as LAL, but just not with an adjustable, a non-adjustable okay. lens. This patient was happy with, yep. 
this patient was happy with monovision. Um, and then it depends. He's not an absolute presbyope. I mean, there's, there's more. If the patient's not post-refractive, I switch monovision patients if they would like to trifocal. So I'm much more comfortable doing that. I'm a little bit more conservative when it comes to a post-refractive patient who's been happy with monovision. If they don't want the light adjustable lens, I go to a monofocal, monovision target. Okay. Mike? His, uh, to piggyback, the uh, this patient's thyroid aberrations were basically like a normal cornea. Um, so he, he has very crisp corneas. So you could, uh, you know, very easily do EDOF, trifocal, whatever your, you know, multifocal of choice is in this patient. And I think they would do really, really well. I just, I lean more towards that LAL mini mono based on history and, and that long history of laser vision correction, maybe with a previous iteration of a eczema. I think you may be onto something there. Bennett, go ahead. Well, I was just going to add that I, I, I love, Zaina, what you said about not being afraid to switch monovision patients to a trifocal. Um, you know, a lot of people say, if, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, it is broke. They've lost their, their range of vision entirely. We're having to use the crutch of, of monovision. And so I, I'm also not afraid to move them for that reason to a trifocal. But in post-refractive, the additional LAL benefit is just hitting the target because it's not a whole lot of fun in a post if this person had LASIK a long time ago, you put in a trifocal, we can, you can do everything right as a surgeon and they heal a little bit off. And are you going to lift an old flat? Are you going to do PRK over uh, an epithelium that is probably thicker than normal because of an old myopic treatment, but it's going to grow back a little less thick and your accuracy is a little bit limited? Or what if you're a cataract surgeon that doesn't do LASIK, everything you do is lens-based, it seems like a pretty easy easy answer for LAL to me here. Right. I, I agree. And that's a really good point, Bennett. Another positive for the light adjustable lens is not that it's just a monofocal with um, EDOF and, and the optical system um, for distance, but it's also your ability to adjust your refractive target. And although we've gotten really good with post-refractive patients with all of the new formulas, um, all the new technologies, diagnostically speaking, we're still more likely to miss that target versus a version I that's been untouched. Uh, and I think that's an important point to think about. Yeah, that's all very, very good feedback. And, you know, it's funny what I tell them when they talk, when they talk about, you know, that, that monovision worked in the past and that was the choice I had then. I said that I always tell them that was the only choice you had, right? That's you, you, you did that because that's all you really could do, right? What I'm offering you with trifocality or EDOF is, is you now have a choice. We could stay in mono and you'll probably do fine. But now you have the opportunity to see both near and intermediate and far in both eyes. And usually two engines is better than one engine. So when I have that, that, that sort of conversation with them, sometimes I can kind of um, push them towards that a little bit. I'll tell you um, a little bit about what I did. Okay, so I actually did uh, a Symphony OptiBlue in the right eye for the dominant distance eye and a Synergy in the left eye for the near eye uh, using femtosecond laser uh, with both. Um, the patient really wanted to see far and near binocularly. Um, I actually did lead with um, the LAL. Uh, and when I started talking about the, the increased visits and the glasses, a little bit, it was a little bit early. It's actually before Active Shield, um, or before I was super comfortable with that. But it was, if anything, it was the visits. This guy had to reschedule his appointment three times just to come in for the consult with me. He's super busy. He's like, Blake, flat out, I just can't get there. 
And it's funny, I, I don't have an EpiMap, but I literally, I even told him, I was like being very transparent. I was like, hey man, like if we miss, like I don't, I don't, I'm not lifting a 17 year old LASIK flap and I don't know about your PRK. It's like, basically, I think you'll be fine, um, you know, but you know, you may still need a little, a little light, you know, uh, contact lens or something if there's anything kind of left over residually. Um, and he was fine with that. Uh, so we did kind of roll the dice. I, 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 uh, it was a little bit risky. I think that, that LAL would have been a safe, safer play. Um, but ultimately, um, we, uh, we uh, uh, did that. He did very, very well. In fact, he was operating like, uh, like three days later after I did a second eye surgery. He did, a, he did a, uh, an aortic valve or something, which is pretty crazy. So amazing how well he healed. So he's quite happy. And it looks like we have a tie. Okay. Oh, my gosh. All right. Um, so we're going to do a lightning round. Um, so it sounds like we're kind of neck and neck. We have uh, two participants here that are tied and we have to have a winner. So I did have a fifth and final case uh, just for this exact scenario. So we're going to kind of wrap this up in about uh, 10 minutes here. Um, so this is a 65 year old man. He is um, a history of post myopic LASIK 15 years ago. Uh, he's been back in bifocals for several years. And now he's seeing poorly and would like a solution to get out of his glasses again. He does have diabetes, but it's been well controlled. He drives trucks for a living. Okay, that's his main, main, main gig. He does have a little PSC cataract to go along with his diabetes, some cortical changes. I can see his little LASIK flap there. You can see he's kind of drifted hyperopic here um, in both eyes. And he's wanting cataract surgery, and he's wanting to not have to wear uh, glasses after. You see, he doesn't really have a whole lot of astigmatism um, uh, in either eye here. You can see he's had a myopic ablation here. So he's a bit thin um, on his pachymetry, but you know, nothing really jumping out at you. Um, seems to go pretty well here with his, uh, with his biometry. A um, little bit flatter case there, but not a whole lot of astigmatism to speak of. Um, you know what we'll do is we'll, we'll, we'll forget approach. Um, we'll just go straight to what lens you would choose in the interest of time here. So um, this guy really is depending on good nighttime vision. Uh, he does have diabetes, even though it's well controlled. Um, Zaina, uh, you go first. Give me your plan. What are you going to do for this guy? Sure. Um, I think the whole night vision is, is really telling you about the dysphotopsia profile. And in a post-refractive patient, um, it, my number one would be light adjustable lens. And then the second would be actually an EDOF, like a Vividi, because the, the actual uh, topography looks very good um, in terms of getting that EDOF, but uh, light adjustable. So you do LAL in this guy. Okay. All I right. post refractive patients. That's what I do. Okay. All right. Mike? Uh, do you have a OPD on this guy? I just have, this is all I have is here. Is the, good. Uh, all right. Good. And the I'm going to assume it was really good. Uh, yeah. So it was, I'm going to so go, uh, assume it was really good. I'm going to do uh, bilateral trifocals in this guy because I think he's going to do really well. I understand the dysphotopsia thing, but I want to go against Zaina because I want to decide. So I can't can't go along with her. And and I, ha I do have that. I do. I do have data to back this up. So we did a study, we presented it at ASCRS uh, this last year, and we asked uh, patient reported outcomes questions on patients that had previous myopic LASIK and had a trifocal, trifocal put in, asked them a bunch of questions. How often do you have glare, daytime, nighttime? How much does it bother you? How much do you need your glasses for different activities? Stuff like that. Would you have this IOL again? 
and it was really, really high, basically 75, 80% on all those answers. And so I feel like this patient would do really well with the trifocal. And so that's why I feel like I am going to knock this one out of the park, ring the bell. Which, tri which trifocal are you doing? Uh, my trifocal of choice right now is panoptic. So I go that direction. Okay. You're doing a panoptic. So Zaina is doing like LAL, you're doing panoptics. Bennett, what are you going to do? I'm, I'm changing it up. Um, I'm, I'm going vividly and here's why. You have a diabetic who's young. Diabetes doesn't get better over time. Um, the retina hopefully will remain healthy enough, but just in case, now you have an acrylic lens. You've you've safeguarded his future vision as long as as well as you possibly can. You're getting a more range with a vision profile that I, in my experience, works very well in these post-LASIK patients with more range than he would have had in a monofocal. Um, and for whenever he has to drive at night, you have a very favorable nighttime um, driving environment for the vision. I think there are just too many positives in this patient for the diabetes to avoid long-term silicone uh, and to avoid multifocality, as well as just his nighttime driving for Vividi. Okay. So you're going Vividi. All right. So let's vote. So you hear what, uh, what we said. We said we have a, we have a panoptics vote with, uh, with Mike. We have a Vividi vote with Bennett. And Zane is going to go with her post-refractive um, LAL. You know, you know, what's interesting is um, while y'all are voting here, um, the um, I'm interested to see what the Rainer EMV uh, would do in something like this. You know, this is a hyperopic patient. Um, you know, um, there's a lot of people, that's a premium lens everywhere else besides America. They're getting good range of vision with that. Apparently it does a little bit better than what maybe the iHance does. Something like that might be good, especially in a person who's hyperopic. Is that one still hydrophilic? It is hydrophilic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a lot of experience with hydrophilic. I guess I'm a little bit of a chicken. Yeah. But I'd love to be proven. And wrong. you're scared. And you're scared of exchanging a silicone lens. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and, then you have, and then you have Mike, who's not scared of anything. He's like, I'll put a trifocal. Hey, I mean, whatever. <laughs> you know, the, the, the beautiful thing about this case and, all, and really all the cases is like these patients have so many options to choose from. Like the toolbox is so big. And I remember growing up, people were like, oh, the golden age of cataract surgery is long gone. Like, this is incredible. I, it's so hard to, people ask like, which lens would you have? And it's like, I, I mean, we got so many <laughs> options. Like this, there's so many. This is this is awesome. This has been a great I program. agree. I agree. I think um, our armamentarium just keeps increasing in a really positive direction. I mean, we're, we're able to give refractive outcomes to patients with abnormal corneas. I mean, that's huge. That's really huge from where we were. And, and, and I, I, you guys have called it each time, uh, one of you have called it. So in this, this case was Bennett. I did the bilateral uh, Clarion Vividi. Uh, he's very pleased. And I did it because he's a truck driver, the dyspotopsia piece. I didn't want him to deal with that. And he was hyperopic. So I thought he'd like his near vision no matter what I gave him with the, the Vividi. Um, and he wasn't going to worry about halo glare starburst driving that truck. So that's what we did. He ended up 2020 J3. Uh, and Bennett, uh, it looks like you are the winner. All right. Uh, of round one of the KOL knockout. How do you feel, man? You know, I, I, got, I want to thank my sponsors. I want to thank my family. Uh, Lord, just, your Lord and Savior. I'm just, Lord and I'm, Savior. I'm, I'm just, I'm so humbled and I'm so honored uh, at the same time. Um, by the way, I'm not afraid of exchanging a silicone IOL. And I, also, ooh, I think ooh. the silicone IOL uh, fear is actually misfounded. If somebody needs silicone oil for a retinal detachment, there are so many other things going on. And some retina folks will say, hey, if you just buzz near it with the phragmatome, you can shake the silicone off of it anyway. So, um, but thank you um, to my esteemed uh, contestants. You put up a great fight. Uh, 
thanks Blake for setting it up and, and for running the show. This was yeah. fun. Love, loved working with you guys. I want to thank my contestants. You guys are awesome. And uh, Dr. Walton, I will see you in the next round. Very good. I need to rest up and rehydrate. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye.